You're listening to Life Sparring, fighting mediocrity one round at a time. In the blue corner, weighing in even heavier than for the first episode, but still punching above his weight. From Hong Kong, your host, Fabian Gruber. In the red corner, a veteran of international consumer goods, marketing and sales, and a champion of digitalizing the customer journey, the reigning managing director of Polar Electro for Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, from Zoe, Switzerland, Eva Hill. This is Life Sparring Round 2. Let's go. Yeah, welcome to Life Sparring, Eva. I'm super excited to have you on the show today. As a quantified self-enthusiast, I'm of course burning to ask questions about Polar Electro and the development and the state of the wearable industry. <laughs> and of course, to discuss the possible future of health and fitness tracking with you. But before we get into that, I would not want to miss the chance to tap into your experience in sales and marketing. Without being indiscreet about your age, it's fair to say you're a veteran in uh, the consumer goods space. And I witnessed it a little bit firsthand as we too have a little bit of shared work history. But we maybe get into this later. But uh, let's start at the very beginning. How did you grow up, uh, Ifa, and how did you start your career? First of all, again, excited to be here. Thanks for the time today to chat a bit through uh, a few a few life sparring experiences. Yeah, I'm starting from Adam and Eve, as you probably rightly said, Eva. I'm I'm probably a small town girl in a true sense. I grew up in a small village in Western Germany, which was a great time. I think you have a happy childhood. I think our origins are not far from each other regionally. But I think I discovered early on that I love to discover things more. Was probably interested in nearly everything in my childhood. Didn't have specific favorite topics in school or anything and I love to discover people and meet people and pretty pretty fond of other languages early on at the same time I'm probably a person who quite easily gets bored so I probably had to do something exciting enough in my life from there on after high school I looked out what to do and I pretty quickly found myself into saying I want to spend part of my studies abroad and there were a few options at the time in Germany of doing basically an internship abroad work during college. That's how I ended up with something called Middle Eastern Business Studies, which is basically business administration and language and some regional economics to study Arabic with French and English and, as I said, business administration. And it was a good escape from my small town there in the countryside to a big city called Bremen, which was fun and city that has traditionally been into trade and trade with foreign countries, with Middle and the Far East. So it sort of fell well into my path of saying, oh, well, I'm going to spend a year in the Middle East. I'm going to learn the language inside out. I'm going to learn something about business and work while being abroad. To wrap that whole experience, I went to Jordan and picked up a few and sort of probably talking sales and marketing career later on. Gave a good grounding also in negotiation. So if you stand on a food market somewhere in a bazaar and you're a young student, you know, not exactly uh, flush with cash, you probably have some ways and experiences to, to try out negotiation and bargain a bit. And I must admit, I kind of found that also quite exciting apart from the whole experience and the exposure, of course. Don't ask me about being a blonde woman in, in the Middle East. With, uh, and a six, tall blonde woman. <laughs> yeah, with six feet, two inches. I was probably known by most of the people in my neighborhood after three days or so, but 
yeah, it's been a very, very rewarding, very happy time. Jordan is an extremely friendly country, conservative, but very, very cautious to foreigners. And I had a, a good first time of my life. I worked in a farm and garden magazine selling advertising foreign companies, as in Switzerland and Germany and so on. I had some business trips to some other Arab countries uh, to practice language and negotiation and things. So, yeah, that was a very fun period. And then I came back to finish college. I did my thesis on the reconstruction of Beirut, Lebanon city centers. So I spent some time there again. And uh, you, you could rewrite it. Absolutely so. Absolutely so. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it is a city of ashes, I think, since 5,000 years. So maybe it's just something that has to do with the city, with all the tragedy that comes with it, obviously. But yeah, so that was a good time. And then after college, I was like, what to do with myself? I actually had a job offer on a gas station in the middle of the desert in Jordan with a friend of mine. And I almost picked up that job while I met somebody during the research for my thesis who said, are you absolutely nuts? Uh, do you want to go there? And Spend the rest of your life on a rest house or a gas station in the middle of the desert. Well, maybe not the whole life, but and he was like, "Yeah, just just you know, explore a bit else, do something with the the studies and the experience you made." And I pretty soonly landed then on the the PNG opportunity because PNG has been always a company. If you're a bright person, you know how to think and to learn. They'll probably uh, skill you with everything else. So I started a sales career, a pretty classical sales path in P&G, which is basically going from a field rep position for a couple of months or a year, then into sales as in junior key account management, key account management. So I made my way through that, which was very good. And talking grounding, I think in terms of business grounding, P&G is obviously a pretty good school. Yeah, I mean, Procter Gamble is kind of famous for providing a good set of tools in consumer goods marketing and sales, I guess, right? It's like the equivalent to McKinsey and consulting or like some other big name companies. Yeah, absolutely. There were not so many options around. I think the tech companies were still in their very early stages. And you know how to conceptualize sales uh, and marketing approaches. I think that's one of the key things that P&G gives you is to conceptually start to thinking from the end, work back, how to get there. So very strategic in the sense of working back from goals and slicing it down to various steps and always putting the customer really in the center before customer simplicity was sort of a, a buzzword on, on everybody's lips. But that was excellent. Exciting times in PNG as well. PNG was kind of centralizing, resetting their European setup at the time. And I joined them in that course from the German and the Dach area to, to Geneva, working in the then newly found European headquarter, which was also a good experience. It's more exposure to, to the rest of Europe, exposure to the American team. Exciting times, as I said, various, you get a lot of exposure to different tasks and projects with the job rotation. You have, you kind of learn to start to adding, add value in, in a very short amount of time, you know months or years of onboarding in a row, trying to quickly learn to adapt to uh, the task. And after that time, I've, I was uh, on a split family package with my then uh, boyfriend, today husband, who was ever since based in Munich. And after five years odd, I was 20, 30, and I was like, how to spend the next five to 10 years of my life? Uh, how would that look like? 
And I made the decision to, to leave PNG, like many other people also do at various stages of their career there, and uh, take the skills that I had and uh, morph into a next phase and also reunite my private life into one city, which was Munich at the time. So that was good. And in uh, I joined a relatively small pharmaceutical company at the time, an OTC company called Hermes a traditional family-owned, very solid company. They gave me the opportunity to basically blend both of the then paths or parts of my career, which was that Middle Eastern background, with the sales and marketing the skills and tools that I could bring from the P&G experience. And I was spending some time there to build and grow the business they had in the Middle East. Interestingly, that has been a company which is focused on effervescent tablets. So I was listening through the, your podcast with Lars. That was a little flashback, an interesting parallel. You know, your mind starts thinking about, yeah, how would that be? And just checking up the price he charged for the product. I didn't know Bix before. So that was an interesting uh, flashback the other day, actually. Perfect. Well, things all connected. I should get you both together and you could strategize a little bit with Vlad on, on expansion of BICS into other countries and regions. Absolutely. That'd be fun. Talking getting bored or things getting maybe a, a bit too small. I wasn't actually searching, but I got this at, at the time in Hermes. I, I got this call from a friend who said there is a company which is, you know, also pretty, pretty known, famous brand. And they were looking for somebody to grow the EMEA business as in CMEA, Central Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and a few other bits and pieces more, and to drive that growth in all those regions further. And I got involved with Britta. Britta is an interesting company because it's sort of not anymore a hidden player, but a company that is a strong brand, and the, the strong brand is the company. So a large identification between brand and the whole business you do, and they're quite a giant in, in household water filtration. And a brand that is focused as as most of the PNG brands and Hermes on on health, you know, a bit more healthier life. So I found that interesting and and joined Britta, and that has been a very exciting five to six years as well. But the more if you're, I think, in a family owned, family managed company like Britta, you quickly if if you kind of have probably prove some some first good ideas and, and actions, you you're quickly going to be absorbed into all kinds and other regions. So I went there to build the, the Middle Eastern business first and then kind of got dragged into, we have a few markets in Central Eastern Europe that need help. We have Portugal here. We have a business in Ireland that wants to be also taken to the next level as part of the, how do we going to manage the UK Ireland, RI Northern Ireland. And I also took care of the SodaStream Corporation, which is basically the Israeli business of Twitter. Twitter was distributed at the time by SodaStream, then called Soda Club, and the other way around. So it had just been coming out of a strong partnership in Germany with SodaStream for the distribution of their products. That was kind of uh, closing, and uh, the Britta business in Israel run by SodaStream was still very alive and also needed sort of a reset so that was a very interesting part of that period as well because it's been sort of a strategic partnership not so easy got to know that Tim quite well uh, and his teams but very exciting and it took me back to the Middle East which will always have and stay a special place in my heart 
other side of the Middle East, but intense in negotiation and, uh, you know, arguing at times as well. Yeah, it had been quite fun and rewarding. Yeah. Then we met in the toy industry. I think we don't have to go into too much detail. Let's say we both uh, tried our best to move a big uh, <laughs> ship around and it was a little bit too little, too late. Maybe not our fault, but I think it was just uh, a difficult time for that company that was uh, kind of like a old style distributor wholesaler in a time where wholesale was a dying business model. And uh, us kind of trying to give it a more modern spin and turning it into a into a modern manufacturer was from the beginning kind of a, yeah, a difficult venture, I would say. Yeah, absolutely. But still, I think every stage is a learning path and and a, and a let's say a precious part of our lives, right? I mean, one thing is we we met, we had I think quite some fun in in pulling off what we could in in that environment with. A fantastic Hong Kong-based team, I'd say. We've been very dedicated. I think at the time there were probably more structural issues in the holding and the mother company we worked for that, let's say, a, a strong, small speedboat even can't turn around. If the tanker has some, some other issues, the, the speedboat probably won't turn it completely. But yeah, I think that time was great for me. I was, I was ready for China and a Far East experience. And I really don't regret anything of that. It was fun. Uh, it was a good flashback for me also back into European, let's say, classic key account expansion. I hadn't worked with Aldi before directly, so that was that was good. Hands-on work with some of the accounts. I think part of the extended Amazon e-commerce commerce ventures that kind of more or less took off in the middle of Europe at the time was also good to get a direct insight on out of the China sourcing. One of the things I enjoyed most, apart from the people and the team, was the speed. I think the speed and the pace in that industry with these collections, you know, uh, large assortments, tons of SKUs, building assortments and customer proposals really out of a flash at times. I think that was great. And in a way, For me personally, that made me even more ready for the tech industry and the consumer electronics side of things and wearables. Which you moved on then after our experience at the toy company while I was stuck in the toy industry for another eight years and <laughs> just recently made it out of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the industry has, if you're not a connected device today, things, things all get a bit harder. Yeah, Polar was, was a great opportunity, which was, I think Polar is a, And, and the wearables industry is sort of a perfect blend of consumer and tech industries and experiences because you're incredibly personal. It's a very close to skin experience at the same time as a lot of high tech going into the devices. And it's just not the same as a smartphone uh, while well, it works on probably the same structures of the industry. When I joined Polar, to be honest, I didn't have the slightest idea what revolution was going on in the industry. Uh, yeah, I mean, just, the, the timing was pretty perfect, right? I mean, you joined Polar in 2013, and that was the year where the, the Basis B1 came out, the first fitness tracker with 24-7 wrist-based heart rate. And it was also the time where the Fitbit, I think, yeah, managed to really make it into a lot of households and really turned fitness tracking mainstream. And then somehow everything merged together, right? The, the classical heart rate watch merged with the Garmin GPS systems. And then came the fitness tracker from the other side. And a little bit later, the whole smartwatch uh, functionality with Apple driving it. So it's a yeah, giant fusion from, from all sides that this market segment underwent right 
Absolutely. I think it's just everything going on in the industry, what you could imagine, which we you know, quickly got to know with that things come from all sides. And I, I always call it like a 3D transformation of the industry because literally the product and the tech were changing. The, the customers you work with, first of all, are changing. Really a, a disruption in terms of your target group. And then the channels you work through to reach the customers are just taking off. And also with, you know, social media, just getting to stage, so much going on in, in this space. I think at the time we were actually also trying to, to search for, you know, at least coin an English word for the industry. I think wearables, you know, people thought that would be an incredibly odd term. I think it then coined very quickly as this is probably what we're talking about in 2014 and 15. Um, and yes, as you say, there is uh, all kinds of usages or there was activity trackers coming in. I think there's like two or three phases in this industry since. One is, as you say, the advent of the whole Fitbit proposition, but also Nike Fuel Band. I think it, it carved paved more for the industry that we still remember today because it was such a short period. And obviously building in GPS, you know, having GPS and heart rate and all that devices, but leading that GPS revolution. And then phase two for me is is actually when Apple came on board in, in 15, really kind of reshaping the whole category. So I think since then, nobody has to do category advertising anymore once they join and Samsung is gone. But also in that phase two, I think a few guys already fell away. I wouldn't exactly say try the same as Garmin, but having a decent device, decent interface, kind of fell over themselves in the expansion. Jawbone was an early contender, pretty quickly gone though in that phase two. And now we're probably in a phase three of focus and orientation. But we'll come back to that. Yeah, I think before we go to that, like, I mean, let's look a little bit on your sales and marketing experience, because I mean, when you went to Polar, you joined a complete new industry. You took uh, charge of a bunch of different regions, right? Like some in Europe, you had responsibility for Brazil at one point. What of the tools that you kind of uh, acquired over the years, like function well everywhere? Like, do you have kind of uh, some distilled principles that you gained out of your experience that you kind of brought to work on, on day one? Yeah, I think it's that's a great question. And and certainly I do. I think, first of all, success is only made by people. And as a leader, you want to have people to follow and join your vision. I think that's like always the, the most important thing. Not not a large maybe, but a, a small special force team that is, is really crucial to success and to train what's there. So you have, you have to make adjustments to the team. I had a great team to start with and, and ever since in Polar, because people are so passionate about what they do. And sometimes I think a very rewarding thing is to probably do the right steps also in terms of coaching or giving people a vision, how much potential and, and passion you can unlock for the business. I think that's still the most important thing. And then to, you know, to jointly work and have fun in that success. In terms of recipes or, or tools or techniques, I think clarity in the end goal or in an objective to go for together is absolutely crucial. Have that clarity where to go and then work back from it. I think one example was at the time when the president told me, yeah, to join, we want to double this business and try to find a way to get there. And then you do it. And even if the target or the objective sounds very high and demanding, 
you need high and demanding objectives. You need to have something that really can inspire and pull people forward. Five to ten percent growth year on year is something, at least for me personally, is not probably an inspiring objective. So demanding goals that they go in three or five years um, time or but aim high and, and work back from it. The other thing is, and that's also sounds like a commonplace, but it's it's actually not, is selling starts when the customer says no. In selling or marketing or Sometimes it's the same, obviously. I think anticipating the objections or the fears or the concerns that your customer slash user slash consumer has is crucial. And you really want to work through those objections. Whether you get them prompted on Facebook or you have to build them up yourself, if you're just starting to build a strategic pitch. And objection handling is the most important thing a salesperson, uh, as a marketing person, should be doing uh, and respecting them. I think that has been pushed and said more prompted by social media, which is actually a blessing for that, right? To get more customer-oriented. Because usually what they say or what they perceive is, is probably what you are. And, and I guess it's like uh, even more crucial in an industry like fitness variables because it's such a community-driven industry, right? I mean, all those athletes, they are communicating. There's a lot of influencing going on with the more famous athletes. Absolutely. And you get feedback. I mean, on a launch day, you get feedback in the first six minutes, right? And you get it from there. And it's it's all true. It's all what the reality is, that what your brand is and the reality you build around yourself. In that industry, a high-profile, high-identification with the product, you get it even more more concentrated. But I think it's something in general that, that holds true. And on the end user side, on the community side, that is, is, is very, very present, very paramount, but also with retail and, uh, you know, account partners. Obviously, at times, the, the user and that community, I think it's a good point you raise, they're a bit ahead of the industry that provides the products in certain senses and with their demands and things. And sometimes you also want to be taking basically all the people that are involved in the sales process by the hand and saying, this is really absolutely crucial. This is something you need to take care of and focus on. So taking that by the hand, but really also taking the fears and, and everything seriously that comes from your, your retail partners is key and anticipate their, their worries also is very important. The other two or three points is I think you should always be able to say in very easy words what your brand does or what your product does. So your auntie gets it or your uncle or somebody, and then the world will get it. So if you don't have a clear articulation of your key product benefit, you probably do have a problem in selling it, marketing it. And then last but not least, life's about timing. Also sounds like commonplace, but You really have to have a good timing in, in any type of pitch you do, uh, whether it's with a customer or an end user or a new product idea. Some things are just, uh, I think there's famous examples of which product innovations were just ahead of their time and sank somewhere or being picked up two, three years later by somebody else who was then celebrated as an industry disruptor. So don't keep it a secret and time well when you launch which type of product or idea yeah that's that would be my my uh, secrets channels. your yeah. secrets so like you said that when you joined polar or you didn't have a full picture of what is expecting you but did the guys at, at polar have at that time were they aware of the revolution that was going on and the new competitors that they were facing 
Oh, absolutely. So indeed, as that, I'm honest, I joined because of the brand. That was my main trigger and the, the industry as such and, and tech products that make your life a bit better and, and healthier. But the transformation at Polar had been going on since a while because you're also basically taking an electronically engineered industry into a software engineered industry. So that is in terms of product cycle and development, that was something that was going on since a few years. I think they had the music very much playing when Garmin started to, uh, to build GPS into, into their devices. So that cycle of development was already set and, and also to build an ecosystem, right? At the time when I joined, the, the actual ecosystem, the Flow app products were launched. So that had been going on for a while. That's not an easy step to to become like a software company after you have been a hardware company for the majority of your history and a successful one, right? I mean, that's the fascinating Absolutely. thing about Polar is that Polar is uh, such a research-driven company, right? I mean, people forget that Polar was the, the company that basically invented uh, the variable heart rate monitor and pioneered the whole market uh, in the early 80s. And yeah, I mean, now that they are one of the smaller players in this um, segment, it's, it's sometimes uh, overlooked what, what big contribution Polar did. And it's fascinating for me in general that 80% of all this innovation comes from Finland, right? Because there's not just uh, Polar, there was uh, there's Santo, there is, there's First Beat, which in the last few years drove a lot of developments in, in hardware variability and uh, algorithms to interpret them. So it's fascinating that this small Scandinavian, Scandinavian country like produced so much fitness innovation. Absolutely. I, I think that is, is something that has been grown with the culture there. I think there's a lot of engineering and electrical and technical engineering that is, is sort of goes very well with the culture and the educational system. And there is, I think, large amounts of legacy from particularly, of course, the, or the structures that Nokia also built in the country and the talent pool and the education around this in the software industry. So that owes a lot to with the various Nokia ventures and hubs they have in the country. And I think, yeah, a world hub in heart rate monitoring wireless ever since, but also other parts of the country with Uvascula. So it is a focus area. The other thing is, I think, which is fascinating, yeah, it can be quite a small nation and you find various ways to survive on the world stage. And that is definitely a stronghold. Yeah. So definitely a world hub in that space. Yeah, fascinating. So from a marketing perspective, how did you see Polar or placed on the market? Like with, with whom did you compete and how did you kind of address your message then? Did you have this kind of like an e-commerce, we always talk about the avatar, kind of the your average customer. And is this avatar maybe different from a Garmin customer? I think that ties back to the various phases of the industry. I think a few years in that phase one where everything, let's say the whole Fitbit craze was coming up, the whole industry was exploding. I think in that phase, also what you see from the Polar products, I think that the brand tried to be a bit more everything to all kinds of people and address people from lower needs to higher needs and so on. So saying there were various competitors, all the ones that we mentioned, and, you know, it's half a part of the Fitbit user base, or the potential Fitbit user base, the Apple user base, Garmin. I think where we are today in the industry and the state of the brand, what is pretty clear is that Polar is performance and sport specific focused. 
So it goes probably a bit more back to the DNA of the brand of saying, you don't have to be a triathlete or a serious marathoner, but if you want to seriously improve your fitness level, then you're probably a potential customer. So that goes things. And Polar left that basic activity tracker in the sense of step counter activity band type of segment, then relatively quickly again. So the core target user is somebody who wants to improve their, their fitness level through meaningful data and guidance. That is ever since the, the focus. And of course, Garmin is, is a key competitor. Yeah, I mean, what's, what's interesting is that Polar, like despite being one of the smaller players, is one of the few that is still really doing completely own research, right? I mean, a lot of the other companies licensed the, the first beat algorithms. And when Garmin acquired the first beat the middle of this year, this was definitely sending shock ripples, I think, through the whole ecosystem because companies like, uh, like Casio, like Huawei, they were all licensing uh, first beat. And now suddenly one of the, the major hardware players themselves owned this piece of IP, I would say. So it's interesting for Polar, yeah, that, that I mean, you have your own algorithms and you are not dependent on uh, your competitor in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that'll be at the core of the positioning from here on as well, our big, big asset. As you mentioned, Perspeed has been supplying most of the other players in the industry, so to say. So Garmin and Sunto as well and Hawaii. And I think what Garmin did was kind of snapping it also up before somebody else could do it because obviously those algorithms are vital to the Garmin journey onwards. So they have to secure that, that the, the biometrics they get out of the, the first speed work were absolutely safe and not Apple buying it or somebody else. And in that end, it's probably a, a vertical integration of basically by a key supplier. Having said that, I think it goes with what also done before is that they keep on supplying the other players, probably at least uh, some of the basic metrics, which probably are also a trade-off of what market uh, dominance they can defend over time. At the end of the day, when they brought down, that probably a bit of a similar approach. And yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see what kind of capacity also Apple will build up in this space, because that in terms of biometrical data, you, you're probably better off in building your own pipeline from there. And, uh, and in my point of view, it's going to be interesting because um, what I see is that the next step in this evolution of this whole industry is happening right now. And this is the move more into the health and medical space. So at the end, I mean, with all the metrics that you have right now on a higher end fitness watch, you start getting a lot of metrics that you can use to predict health developments in general, so far beyond kind of just your athletic abilities. And I think that this is, in my point of view, the, the next killer application for fitness-oriented variables. I think we are not so far away from being able to do blood glucose uh, monitoring with an, with an optical sensor, possibly hydration. I mean, we have blood oxygen already, we have uh, HIV, we have a lot of metrics. And there was like now COVID, of course, again, kind of kicked a lot of things off. And there was a lot of research on early recognition of COVID symptoms via health variables, etc. Yeah. Is this something you also see the same way? Or is that something that Polar says, okay, that's not our space. We want to stay more on the athletic side of things and, and focus on coaching, focus on professional users in that sense? 
I think two two answers to your question are twofold. One thing, yes, we see it similar to you that there's probably the industry will diversify more in both directions. Just see Fitbit being snapped up by Google and what Apple does in, in their healthcare sort of application space. And the, the second part of the answer is I think Polo is in a good place to continue to focus on, on sports specific use and focus on people that want to improve their fitness. So I think the core of the of the ambition here is fitness, not medical prevention or health health improvement uh, as basics. And that's probably something that other parts of the industry and classic health industry will probably answer for themselves. And then I wouldn't exclude that sometimes you have still some collaboration. I think Paula has been uh, collaborating with health insurances goes back to as early as 2011 in terms of activity as health prevention. I'm collecting health bonus time. points. Yeah, and uh, so that will continue. But the actual predictive analysis, what you mentioned, predictive algorithms, is uh, probably something that were choices that other parts of the industry will make beyond if it's important or imminently relevant to your sport application. You c connect your, your activity with hydration, you know, building some guidance, basically guidance features into some of the products when you go hiking, and really focus on improving your fitness level. So predictive analysis in terms of how your fitness will develop in the next weeks or months. I mean, that's, that's a fascinating part that a lot of those developments were driven from that fitness side, but then you start kind of uh, using them for other applications. And I mean, I think like, for example, SpO2 also is not the, the biggest metric for fitness activity unless you are like climbing in the Himalayas. Yeah. But for example, suddenly you can find out if you have a sleep apnea by just looking at your SpO2 records over the night. Yeah. Absolutely. And uh, nightly breathing is, is an early indicator of, of illness or fever. All those insights will, will continue to fold into the industry. And then some will use it for health, health predictions, predictive steps, and others will basically still use it for fitness or how, how much to run today or, you know, give a, give a rest day to yourself. I think that's the part where the polar outer itself is to, to blend all the 24-7 uh, metrics you can generate or data you, you generate with your own activity into how your fitness performance, your next sport performance will look. What's very much focused on on that to that end. And this whole transformation, like really being part of it and, uh, and experiencing it firsthand, did that change your view on how sales and marketing should be done quite a bit? Or do you still think uh, it's more or less still the same principles that apply? I think the, the influence that social media has or the community and the influence you work with is something that has shaped the industry more, more and more in the past few years. I think that's the fascinating thing. And that is, I wouldn't necessarily say it completely changed it, but the, the power user has today to make a difference also to, to the, the brand presence or the brand reality is something that has been grown a lot. I think it just more or less reconfirms that the user should be at the center of what you do and you better take it seriously. Otherwise, probably others will record it for you or answer that. Demand. What we saw through, through COVID now is, is obviously that users have had more time really and cash to spend on their personal fitness, just being locked up at home in our personal pages, as I tend to call them, you know at home, you, you actually see activity more of a value than before. 
being, you know, like your right to activity is something that I think has hit people's awareness far more than health as well, but also this this right to move. This is why we probably saw an explosion of, of people that we never saw on a running tra- trail in, in Hong Kong and Zurich and, and everywhere. And I think it's it's also about taking control of things, right? I mean, in a, yeah. in a situation where you have the feeling you don't have control about a lot of uh, things that happen around you, taking control of your own health, like starting to eat more healthy or starting to, to run is something that, yeah, that doesn't require too much and it's completely in your own hand. And I think that this is a reflex that a lot of people have when there's a crisis situation going on, no matter what kind. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's also tons of, of exciting new data about what happened in the past 10 months. But I think one data point was that the Germans, for instance, actually were eating healthier during that period. They were drinking more water at home. I mean, you, you go out less to buy cordials or juices or stuff because you just don't go so much shopping. But they drink more water. They had more fruit, more healthy food than usually, which is a very good thing. And that is all beyond, you know, vegan or other mega trends or the media pushing it into them. So you, you try to do something, you protect yourself. Health is more key than before in fitness. And a sports device is one way to take control of that to a certain extent. And it's always a good motivation. So I must say, every time I upgrade my personal bearing device, I'm always uh, hitting the tracks immediately much, much more hitting the, the mountains here. Yeah. Um, it's just, you want to try out the new features and uh, it's... Absolutely. And... Uh, I think people are also more open for using testing features and, and you've got a bunch of tonal features in the device, but probably won't be using it. People had more time and more focus to, to go through the various features the product has. And I, I talked about life's about timing as well. Sometimes we obviously also see that a feature we have on the product, we thought the story has been told maybe six months ago. It might just be, and that's, that's just normal also consumer marketing textbook. What look like old shoe for us might be just something which is dramatically new for users so you know you pick up the story at the right moment in time and it becomes very large and very relevant yeah, I mean, when I, when I did the research for this episode, I was surprised that um, actually Polar also was very early with HRV, um, for example. So heart rate variability yeah. was something that actually also Polar pioneered far be, before first speed. But what seemed to happen was that there was still one step missing. Like basically Polar didn't really know what to do with this. And then it took first speed maybe to really kind of bring it to like a mass approach and more use. I mean, I'm using some of those um, algorithms quite, quite a lot like this all-day stress measurements, fascinating insights into your own body that you're not even aware of. Absolutely. And this is about telling the story, right? Telling the story at the right moment in time and also retelling it. I think we've got with Nightly Recharge, which is basically a accumulation of the HRV, ANS charge uh, metrics, also sleep, resting heart rate and sleep is is all, all areas that if the better you are able to tell that story in terms of telling the benefit as opposed to the feature, the better relevance you get into people's lives. So we have a key function in the product called FitSpark. I don't know if you saw that since, which is basically giving you exercise recommendation based on the full set of your 24-7 data as an activity sleep, the, the full set of sleep, and that's pretty unique. And the feature is not brand new, but it is new. And we've been focusing on, on retelling that story throughout this year. Basically. 
and you, you basically want to make sure that all these features get uh, notified and, and aware with uh, people's minds, as opposed to just talking about the next pack or uh, just the longer battery life, which is very, very important. <laughs> Talking uh, Especially for slow trail runners like me. I mean, I just, uh, it just takes me quite some time to complete 50 kilometers. So I need to yeah. watch that has that capacity. <laughs> and I think talking tech limitations, a lot of what we do is, is driven by a battery, obviously, right? And the, the fight of features versus memory. On that side of, of technical limitations, I think we're all, uh, yeah, the, how much the component manufacturers actually uh, scale up and, and take that next level shape what we do. But we've come a long way in terms of what we can do in devices that are below 60 gram or even 50 gram in terms of battery life. It's fascinating. So what is the next big technology innovation that comes from Polar? What are they secretly working in the labs in Finland? <laughs> I think that's a good question. I think you wanna you wanna have that answered through all all the announcements. And as I said, the more even for potential new users, I think it's it's good to follow that. And what I said earlier, I think we'll be very focused on what happens what happens in the outdoors, what happens on the trails, how to blend in that mileage and battery life and data accuracy, GPS accuracy with features that that help you to build your fitness better. That will always be the area of space. Going to be a fascinating onward journey from here. That sounds like a good conclusion, Eva. I mean, I, I don't think I can get more secrets out of you here. So, <laughs> how can people reach you? Do you have any social media presences that we should uh, highlight here? Or yeah, I'm quite easy to, to be found on LinkedIn. Got a short, short first and family name, so Eva Help on LinkedIn should take you where I am. Got an Instagram, so that's probably the easiest to reach. Perfect. Then thank you very much for sparing with me, Eva. Thank you too, Fabian. Happy New Year and uh, yeah, great onward journey from here.